0: So, up to the time of the Reformation the formula was the Bible. Okay, the Bible and uh, the natural world, reason, tradition, etc, etc, etc. Okay, we're coming down to the time of the Reformation now. With the Reformation we have a new philosophical system. Uh, this is just a picture of the Reformers wall there in in uh, switzerland uh, the reformation their specific intent was re- to return to the bible as the foundation of all human disciplines now the reformation was not perfect who of us are but ellen white sees sees us in line with the reformation and our job is to complete the reformation remember the statement there in great controversy there will be a people upon the earth who will, who will accept the Bible and the Bible alone. It's the only fool, rule of faith and, and, uh, and anyway, and over against science, the, the uh, other churches and so on and so forth, we will stand out accepting the Bible alone. Okay, so Sola Scriptura. Firm the foundational role, and something's happened in my slide there. So, Sola Scriptura was their basic mantra. Instead of the Bible and, as the Bible alone. Now, what did, what did that mean? Okay, the biblical, the worldview, the philosophy, must come from where? Okay, Scripture alone. Not from Aristotle, not from Plato, not from Kant, not from Descartes. Uh, it must come from Scripture alone. Method for the study of Scripture must arise out of Scripture itself. Remember, method for the study of Scripture with Plato, with, with uh, Origen came from Plato. Method for the study of Scripture for uh, Aquinas came from Aristotle. Okay, so they said method for the study of Scripture must come from Scripture itself. Otherwise, we are imposing an external philosophical system on scripture. And scripture must be its own interpreter. Compare text with text, but not only text with text. Comparing text with all of scripture and within the philosophy of scripture itself. So he didn't deny that God could speak through other channels. Uh, So God could indeed speak through Pope, church councils, church history, through the natural world etc. Etc. But Scripture provided what? The only foundation. Okay, the only, the sole, the foundation for accepting and the basis for interpreting God's revelation and other areas. So I I can gain insights from the history of Christianity. But that is not the norm. That's not what I decide what insights are valid by Scripture itself, not by the Bible and something so, Martin Luther, of course, there were many reformers, and Martin Luther, who we've just celebrated the uh, 500 years since his nailing of the thesis to the wall, to, to the door. Uh, Ellen White has some very interesting comments to make about Martin Luther. Fairlessly Fear- did Luther defend the gospel from the attacks which came from every quarter. The Word of God provided itself a weapon mighty in every conflict. Notice the word of God provided itself a weapon. Not Plato, not Aristotle, not Kant, not Descartes. Okay, the Bible provided uh, itself a weapon, mighty in every conflict. With that word, he warred against, I want you to notice this, he warred against the usurped authority of the Pope, against the... Okay, which would be Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, of the schoolmen. So the schoolmen is a code term for, uh, for scholasticism. You're right, okay. Well, they said, firm as a rock against the fanaticism that sought to ally itself with the Reformation. Now notice this. Each of these, can you think of any, anything more radically different? Authority in one man, the pope, Authority in the heads of the schoolmen. Authority in the excesses of the spirit of Thomas Munster. Okay, dramatically different systems. They're all the same. How? They all set aside the scriptures and they all put authority in humankind instead of in God's word. Regardless of their differences, they were the same. So Zwingli, I like Zwingli because he had an experience very similar to mine, and I'll I'll tell you about my experience. Uh, But basically he said, the Word of God is the only infallible authority. No, he's not using a new method, but the old method employed by the church in earlier and purer times. And indeed, the school, uh, just slipped my mind. Anyway, there was another school of thought that was developing along the lines of Reformation. Unfortunately, the school from Alexandria became predominant and swallowed up the other school of thought. Some people say the Reformation never would have been necessary had the other school of thought prevailed, Uh, but unfortunately it didn't. Okay, so the more he searched the scriptures, the clearer appeared the contrast between their truths and the heresies of Rome. He did what? submitted himself. See, these other systems submitted themselves to a philosophical system. He submitted himself to scripture. Uh, Is the word of God the only sufficient infallible rule? He saw that it must be its own interpreter. He dared not attempt to explain scripture to sustain a preconceived theory. You don't start with Aristotelianism or Platonism or any other ism. Uh, but held it his duty to learn the direct and obvious teaching out of Scripture, sought to avail himself of every help, obtain a full and correct understanding of its meaning, and he invoked the aid of the Holy Spirit, which would he declared, reveal it to all who sought it in sincerity and truth. Now, in, in fairness, Thomas Aquinas also invoked the aid of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, he was still doing that synthesis instead of relying on scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit for his theology. Okay, so didn't accept the preconceived ideas, invoked the aid of the Holy Spirit, who would reveal it to all who sought it in sincerity and truth. So so how is it that we understand scripture? The Holy Spirit is there to guide us, the Holy Spirit who gave us scripture is there to guide us in the understanding of Scripture. The Scriptures said, Zwingli, come from God, not from man. And notice this. How do you know that the Bible is the Word of God? And even that God who enlightens will give you to understand that the speech comes from where? From God. Okay, so it's not not because I found a foundation to put underneath Scripture that I can accept it as the Word of God, it's because God is the one who enlightens us to understand that it comes from him. Uh, so it goes on, the self loses itself, it forfeits itself. Uh, then move, moving down halfway, I began to give myself wholly up to the holy scriptures, philosophy and theology, scholastic, by the way, that's Ellen White's parenthesis, would always suggest quarrels to me. At last I came to this. I thought. You must let all that lie and learn the meaning of God purely out of his own simple word. Then I began to ask God for his light, and the scriptures began to be much easier for me. Now, I had an experience very similar to that. Uh, As I mentioned, I was raised in the Adventist church through uh, Master of Divinity at the seminary and an Old Testament uh, master's at the seminary. I was working at Biblical research, I was in contact with theologians all over the world, Uh, and nonetheless, I was using a humanistic system rather than a Biblical system. So I wrote a paper on the history of method of theology, some of the materials we've been dealing with came from that, Uh, and it was an individual project with my professor. We were going over my paper one day, and I had a little summary at the end saying, not just reviewing theological systems, but then giving my own concept of what theology was, and I said, the task of the theologian is to take the truths of the natural world and the truths of scripture and synthesize them together. And my professor, uh, I considered him kind of a guru, his, his specialty was 19th century religion in America, so it kind of fit with, you know, the period in which our church arose, and he had a beard, and occasionally you would see a smile come behind his beard and then a little twinkle in his eye, and when when you saw that, you knew a gem of truth was coming. So I saw the smile, I saw the twinkle in his eye, I knew a gem of truth was coming. He leaned back in his chair a little bit, and he said, Ed? You're a good scholastic theologian. Now, with a feather, he could have knocked me off my chair. He could have told me that I had stage four cancer. Ed, you're a scholastic theologian. Now, like I said, I, I was very bashful back in those days. I didn't answer him. I didn't say a word. But he leaned back further in his chair and he said, Ed, I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. It took me nine months to get over that because I had been taught to think from a humanistic perspective. You know, didn't Ellen White say, higher than the highest human thought can, can reach? And uh, didn't uh, Isaiah 1.18 say, come let us reason together? And didn't Ellen White say that faith is based upon evidence? And so I thought that from Scripture and Ellen White I had developed my system of thought. And so I was struggling, and besides that, God has, God has given us freedom. And so I went back and I, had to, I, I studied those passages. One of my professors told me that Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is based upon evidence. Um, so I went to Hebrews 11:1. You know, and I checked it out. You know, I had to read Hebrews 11 20 times before suddenly it dawned on me that it does not say faith is based upon evidence. You're exactly right. Faith is evidence. See, I'd been building a whole theological system based on that interpretation of scripture. Uh, Isaiah 118 It doesn't say, come, let us reason together. The passage starts out, you've sinned. And Israel says, no. I mean, they're arguing with God. We haven't sinned. And God says, yes, you have. And they say, no, we haven't sinned. Well, you know, what what are you thinking? We haven't sinned. And then finally God says, you think you're going to come and argue with me? You know what, I'm gonna do something totally unreasonable. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. So what I had interpreted as a a totally rationalistic interpretation, the passage itself was the exact opposite. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, which I think we had, might have had a few passages from there. You know, do do we think we're gonna bring God into judgment? In fact, stand up like a man. You know, bring God in. You think you're going to bring God into judgment? Uh, account for yourself. So it, it's really kind of, um, well, what's the right word? Anyway, it, its intention is not to say, come let us reason together. It's, it's kind of pushing fun at those who think they're going to come and reason and bring God into judgment. Uh, the passage in, in Ellen White, where she says it's based on reason. She says it's based on reason, but not on demonstration. So automatically she makes a difference there. And then she goes on and tells us how it's based on reason. She says there's mystery in God. Mystery in God. And since there's, God is beyond our reason, there's mystery in God. And those who accept the God that is mysterious, the mystery in God, I mean, you would expect God. If God is really God, there would be parts of him that are mysterious, right? And so that brings us more faith to see who God really is. Whereas those who come with doubt, the mystery will only increase their doubt. And then she says there's also mystery in Scripture, so she's not talking about a rationalistic, scientific kind of a system, she's talking about you know, the power in scripture itself that we uh, open our lives to receive and to transform our lives. So anyway, I had to go through all of those and more and, and studied it and studied it and studied it and like I said, I, I couldn't just read it once because I had been taught to read it in one way and I, it was hard to see another way. And so I had to put it in this context. I had to put a number of passages together to see what they're saying. And we'll, we'll read some of these passages a little bit later about faith and, and reason and so on and so forth. And so gradually over the period of that nine months, and fortunately at the same time, not only was I going to Catholic university, I had a project at uh, Biblical Research which involved studying Ellen White in this specific area. So I eventually developed three file drawerfuls of material uh, from Ellen White, so I, I had the benefit of that along with my study. So my professor said I was a good scholastic theologian. Okay, so remember uh, for the early church in the mid, middle ages, you start with the concept of reality. You either impose that on scripture or you argue directly from that concept of reality to who God is, the Reformation has a totally different system. If you want to know God, where do you start? You must rely on God's self-revelation. So here God is revealing himself to the student of Scripture. Because the student of Scripture has God's word, the worldview that comes out of Scripture, he can understand both the tree and the flower that's wilted. This morning we were trying to understand the flower that was wilted. Because of God's word, we can understand that. It gives us a lens for understanding that. And we can also talk about God because God has revealed himself to us. Okay, so five years from now, are you gonna remember those two words? The Bible and? The Bible alone, okay? Remember that five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. When you're teaching your students, what are you gonna teach them? The Bible alone. Okay, very good, the Bible alone. Again, that doesn't mean that we put an X through science or that we put an X through history or through reason. It means that the Bible is the foundation upon which we place our understanding of the entire world and upon which we base our lives, the way we live, the way we think, what we teach, so on and so forth. So the Bible is the lens, the philosophy through which the natural world is understood. Okay, so the Reformation built upon the Bible alone. Now, as I've already said, they weren't perfect in that, and none of us will be perfect. But there's a difference between intention I intend to make the Bible the foundation for my theology, and I intend to reinterpret Scripture within a philosophical system. You see that difference? I mean, one, you're committing yourselves to God's word and asking God to continue to guide in your understanding of that word. The other is, I am going to impose a philosophical system upon Scripture. So, Bible was the foundation for all human disciplines, okay? So, very shortly after the time of the Reformation, there's a period called Protestant Scholasticism. Now, remember Thomas Aquinas was a scholastic? It's amazing how quickly this happens in the history of Christianity. You know, within two centuries after Christ, you have, you have Origen, Platonizing Scripture. Now, by the way, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying these individuals aren't going to be in heaven. I'll leave that to God. I mean, Origen was even a martyr for Christianity. So he was a dedicated person. But nonetheless, he was reinterpreting Scripture from a philosophical perspective. Um, so, so immediately after the time of Christ, you have the, the, the beginning of the apostasy, of the Church. You have the Protestant Reformation. Within 50 to 100 years, you have Protestant scholasticism, which is going back to the methods that were used before the Protestant Reformation. The school of scholasticism, in one sense or another, has continued down to the present, and you find major Protestant theologians who are still using that kind of a system. Uh, And so, In the 1940s, I think it was, there was an evangelical movement that arose within the United States by the 70s and 80s. They were already imbibing the philosophies of other secular scholars around them and using some methods that I'll describe a little bit later. So this happens very quickly. So we shouldn't think that because we're Seventh-day Adventists, we're immune to this kind of a system. It's each, it's the responsibility, I thought last Sabbath's lesson was great, that that's part of our stewardship, that that God has entrusted to us the message of salvation. And it's it's part of the commitment of our lives to safeguard that message. And I know that's the reason many of your schools exist, and I appreciate that. So, tradition was the authority, church tradition, But particularly, and this is one thing that surprised me, I I had always thought of tradition as church tradition. So it was the Bible and church tradition. Well come to find out it was more the Bible and the tradition of Greek philosophy that was important. So particularly the philosophy that came from Aristotle, the cosmology of Ptolemy, well go over that in just a second. So scripture and nature were to be understood by the authority of the past, by the traditions of the church, the intellectual traditions of scholasticism, particularly Aristotelianism. Uh, things were categorized by their degrees of perfection uh, from you know the earthly mundane things up to the perfect heavenly things. There were two distinct worlds, God on the one hand and the world of the really real. And immutable things, and then, uh, on the other hand, immutable things of the earth—a shadow of reality—and the goal, of course, was be to to be restored to the really real. And so, (laughs) freedoms—the Enlightenment came into this era, Uh, the Reformation had opened up freedoms that we hadn't had before. Uh, We were each individually responsible to God and had access to God. We didn't need to go through intermediaries. Uh, Political freedoms began to open up and the Enlightenment stepped into the freedoms that were opened up by the Reformation. And they also were a reaction to the authority of tradition and the rigidity of the scholastic system, and so the development of modern science took place with that new philosophical understandings took place within the era of the Enlightenment. Uh, new cosmologies: Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Newton, etc. Uh, they suddenly discovered that there were uh, mountains on the moon. I mean, Aristotle had never described mountains on the on the moon. Uh, they discovered that uh, planets were not in orbit around the earth, but around the sun, and that planets were not in a circular motion, but that they were in an elliptical motion. And so the Bible had been so closely tied to that kind of thinking that when they threw out the old scholastic way of looking at the universe, they threw the Bible out with the bathwater and thought that really the Bible was the cause uh, for the bathwater. And so the, the fight was not really between the Bible and science, it was between scholasticism and science. And so many people that want to argue against creation say, well, look at Galileo. Well, Galileo's fight was with a philosophical system. The Bible happened to be caught up in it because people had, had unfortunately misused the Bible and, and used it within a Platonic system of thought. And so that really it should be a lesson for us uh, against using philosophical systems as our foundation rather than an argument for using a philosophical system as our foundation. And so they discovered the Earth was not the center of the universe, the Earth was not in orbit around this, the Earth was in orbit around the sun rather than the sun around the Earth. New planetary uh, orbits were elliptical, new stars, et cetera, et cetera, objects fell to the ground because of gravity, not because of Newton saw an apple fall out of the tree, but he recognized that the gravity that we have on Earth is the same gravity that is holding the universe together. And so the universe operates by by gravity just as gravity operates uh, on on Earth. Planets remained in orbit by the same laws that caused rocks to fall to the ground, the same laws that applied on Earth, applied in the heavens. The heavens were composed of material substances and on Earth they weren't spiritual substances. See, the reason they said that the planets were in a circular orbit instead of Uh, an elliptical orbit was because a circle is perfect and perfect is divinity and the planets were divinities. So they had to be in a a circular motion. They couldn't be in any other kind of motion. Therefore, though they recognized problems with that and Ptolemy wrote a very, very extensive uh, book describing those problems, they figured out ways to solve those problems by putting epicircles wherever they needed to account for a change from, uh, from to elliptical from a circular motion. So the dichotomy uh, between heaven and earth was broken. Uh, the same laws applied on earth as in heaven. And so the absolute authority of Aristotelian tradition and its attending scholasticism was called into question. So the scholastic synthesis, the integration model, was rendered apart by scholastic uh, by the era of the Enlightenment, and the Bible became um, it had a new veil. New philosophical systems were placed upon. Scripture. So science was now autonomous not only from human tradition but also from biblical guidance. Uh, So Francis Bacon, for example, one of the first considered by some to be the father of the scientific method, said that it is empiricism alone, it's science alone. Uh, Rene Descartes, uh, he was concerned about the skepticism that arose because what happened here, we had a very, very mature philosophical systems that gave us truth for almost two millennia, in fact, more than two millennia. And now all of a sudden, those systems fell apart. Uh, And just to back up a little bit, before Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, there were the, the, uh, the Socratic, or rather the sorry, it slipped my mind, the philosophers before them did not believe that there was certain knowledge. And so Plato, Aristotle, and so on came along to prove that there was certain knowledge, and that worked for 2,000 years. Then when that fell apart, then people became, became skeptical about the possibility of certain knowledge. And so Descartes was concerned that they were skeptical about whether there could be certain knowledge or not, so he wanted to prove that there could be certain knowledge. Uh, So he systematically doubted everything, so he came along and he said, uh, I don't know that tree out there. Maybe that's just my imagination that's creating that, that tree. I don't know whether you exist or not. I mean, maybe my mind is just... Maybe maybe I I think you exist, but you don't really exist. I don't know whether I exist. I don't know whether my mind exists. Ah, but now wait a minute. I'm doubting. I can't deny that I'm a doubting self. Therefore I exist. Now they've reformulated that, I think, therefore I exist. But originally it was, I doubt until I can doubt, now no more. And the fact that I can doubt now more, I now have a rock-solid foundation for my faith. By the way, sometime get a hold of the Index to Ellen G. White's writings and read what she says about doubt. And see what scripture says about doubt. I mean, I just attended a lecture at one of our universities where, in fact, it was a whole weekend devoted to doubt. And how the power of doubt and, and... not not the negative power of doubt, but the positive power of doubt. It gives us a basis to start thinking from. Uh, if we doubt, in fact, we have to doubt if we're going to have faith. Um, so, doubt has has virtually taken over education. You know, most education uses doubt as kind of a starting point, and it's the task of the teacher to take the student out of doubt into quotes knowledge. Okay, so anyway, he systematically doubted until he could doubt no more. That gave him the certainty of his self-awareness. I doubt, therefore I am. Um, So, for Descartes, analytic reason alone, notice, alone, not in the Bible or anything like that, alone as contrasted with reason that was guided by the Bible was the basis for understanding the natural world. Human reason was enthroned as supreme authority. Uh, So the authority of scripture was replaced by the authority of human reason. By the way, that's a rationalistic argument, just to tag things for you to, to help you understand. He's starting with reason alone as opposed to an empirical argument that starts with science alone. Uh, So the universe was understood mechanistically rather than sustained by God. Whereas Luther's foundational certainty was in his faith in God's revelation in the Bible, Descartes' foundational certainty was his faith in the procedural clarities of mathematical reasoning applied to the thinking self. And I won't. Take the time to go through all of that. So mankind was now free. Now notice this, remember the, the Reformation opened up some freedoms for us. Now mankind was free not only from the dictates of the natural world, no longer were we dominated by this external world of reality that we had with Plato and Aristotle, uh, but also from tradition, from the church, the king, and specifically from Scripture. And so now we had come of age. We no longer needed God looking over our shoulder telling us how to live or what to do. We can now determine that on our own. So John Locke, ideas are not innate. The mind is a blank slate to be written upon by our experience. Experience alone, I'm just going through very quickly other philosophical systems so you see some of the breadth experience alone, not intuition, not reason, not scripture. It's the foundation for understanding. Uh, when you have a new epistemology, what do you have? That's right, a new view of God, okay? So within this context, uh, deism arose, uh, the divine architect, God was the divine architect who set the universe in motion, but not the man of Calvary not active in history, not the man of the exodus, nor will he become again, coming again in the second coming. Uh, The universe was to be explained on mechanical and mathematical principles, observation and analysis, not scholastic ideas, not divine revelation or God's action. So for deism, God was active in the design and creation of the universe. God's revelation is universal in nature. I'll pause for just a moment for you to capture that. God's revelation is universal in nature. Remember we started out about asking what you can know about God in the natural world? It's because most theologies in one sense or another are built on a natural theology, and deism was totally built upon a natural theology. God's revelation is universal in nature. God was not active in historical events. God did not reveal himself in the Bible to a particular people at a particular time. So faith is based upon empirical evidence and reason. Faith is not based upon the gift of God through the Bible, not on God's self-revelation of himself. So the results of the enlightenment, the nature and source of knowledge of the natural world is not to be determined by special revelation. You don't use the Bible understand the natural world. It is to be discovered by some aspect of humanity, primarily by empirical science. Doubt was integral to the process of the acquisition of knowledge. Everything was to be questioned until one arrived at an absolute starting point. Doubt is still central to education today. So faith, if it had any meaning at all, was founded upon and harmonious with the results of the scientific process Faith was not based upon God's Word, but rather in human intellect. And so theology, and I need to go back and make that theology box a little smaller. Theology, if it existed at all, if it had any meaning at all, was a small little box on top of science instead of theology, the study of Scripture being the determiner. And an X was put through the Bible as the foundation for our understanding. So science was king. This is a little bit long, but it really captures kind of the essence of what was going on. So if you don't mind, I'm gonna go through that. In fact, if you want to stand and get some air while I'm reading it, you're welcome to do that. Uh, The greatest achievement of Newtonian science must ever be the first full explanation of the universe on mechanical principles. One set of axioms and laws of the universal gravitation applied to matter everywhere on earth as it did in the heavens. Who after studying the contributions of thought could deny that pure science, and that those are my italics, uh, exemplified this creative accomplishment of the human spirit at its pinnacle. Notice the human spirit, we hear a lot about the human spirit, we want to develop the human spirit, the human spirit's doing this, the human spirit's doing that. Not God is working through us, to do those various things. Okay, what an exalted view of science. I mean, we're talking religious terms now. Science has become our god. What a transforming view Newton gave to all humans. By the way, this is kind of distorting Newton a little bit, but we won't have time for that. In all different endeavors, the optimistic view that humans could deduce the order of the natural world had a significant trickle-down effect in other human Endeavors. So the scientific method became the model for all of study. The study of history, psychology, sociology, etc. So science had become the way, the truth, and the life. Freedom was absolute. Humanity was no longer under the bondage of Greek metaphysics, scholastic theology, the church, tradition, or the authority of the Bible. So while, Greek, while the classical Greek world... View had emphasized the goal of human intellectual and spiritual activity as the essential unification or reunification of man with the cosmos. Remember, our goal was to be restored to this eternal structure of reality. Uh, cosmos and its divine intelligence, and while the Christian goal was to reunite man and the world with God, The modern goal was to create the greatest possible freedom for mankind, freedom from nature, from the oppressive political systems, social, economic structures, from restrictive metaphysical or religious beliefs, from the church, from Judeo-Christian God, from the static and finite Aristotelian Christian cosmos, from medieval scholasticism, from the ancient Greek authorities, from all primitive concepts of the world leaving behind tradition generally for the power of the autonomous human intellect. What is powerful? I know we're going through a lot of stuff, but it's important to get this. What is powerful? powerful? Right, and his... Okay. Yeah, the autonomous human influence, the power of of autonomous human intellect. Modern man set out on his own to determine, to discover the working principles of his new universe, to explore and further expand its new dimensions and to realize his secular fulfillment. Now, if you go to the university to get your PhD, this is the thinking that's going to be behind, and of course, some more modern types of thinking as well. It's going to be behind the epistemologies that you will learn. And so it's going to be important to decouple yourself from those epistemologies. And look at it from a biblical perspective instead of from these other perspectives. So, we'd come of age, no need for God to tell us how or what to believe. Uh, Neither God nor his word is necessary to understand the universe. God, if he exists, must conform to whatever we discover to be true in the natural world. Have any of you seen this? This is the frontispiece of the encyclopedia, not encyclopedia, encyclopedia, the French encyclopedia, the first major encyclopedia that was ever uh, written in about mid 1700s. By the way, my son took a couple hours to make that presentable to an audience. Uh, but tell, tell me what you're seeing there. Picture is worth a thousand words, probably 10,000 in this case. That's the cover piece, right? Yeah, most of them. There's a lady. I can get, get it back on. In the center is Lady Truth. What's emanating from her? Light. She's the source of light. Pardon? Lady Truth. Yes. Okay. So light is coming from Lady Truth. Uh, the sciences and philosophy on the right are unveiling her to see her more clearly. On the left, the arts are adorning her glorifying her right yeah on on the left are the arts yeah on the right are the sciences or the theologians yeah yeah exactly right theologians are right in here what are they doing Kind of. They do have some kind of, an altar of incense of some sort, right? Maybe the sacraments or whatever. Yeah, they're in darkness. They aren't in line of sight to the light. They're looking up, looking for light, but there is no light coming from God. And since they aren't in direct line of sight with Lady Truth, they're in darkness. Right, right, yeah, yeah, this is connected with that, Uh, right, okay, so here we see that no longer do we have scripture giving us a worldview within which we can understand uh, the world around us and in which we can understand God, in which we can understand his offer of salvation. It's rather humankind through the sciences and the arts that we will create our society And that will be our Savior instead of God being our Savior. It will be our basis of understanding the world rather than God being the basis of understanding the world. So, the 18th and 19th century theology stepped into the epistemological shoes that were developed in the era of the Enlightenment. And... uh, So I want to give you just two quick illustrations of theology that take place within this context, and you know there are hundred illustrations we could use or more. Uh, but I want I want to help you see how philosophy, these kinds of philosophy shaped theology. So, <coughs> Immanuel Kant, uh, I'll just describe it. It'll go a little faster. Immanuel Kant started. He didn't start with the, with scriptures. He started with man's moral nature. He said, spirituality is expressed through our moral nature. So we're right in rejecting all of the old theological arguments for the existence of God. We've gone through a few of them. We're gonna have new arguments for the existence of God. And so what is it that's universal in human nature? He says, first of all, we aren't born with a tabula rasa and that's a debate back and forth in philosophy. We're already born with something in our head. The, the baby doesn't look through the slats one day and says, say, I deduce from this and this and this and this that I must be a moral person. The baby, when he's born, already has within him or her that he, he or she must be a moral person. And so that's already part of his nature. The other thing that we have by nature, already part of us, is that we want to be happy. We have an insatiable desire for happiness. And so, if we live throughout this life a moral life, we can't fulfill all the moral imperatives that we feel are upon us. And so, therefore, there must be a life beyond in which we can fulfill the moral imperatives that we have upon us. You see that? We're we're born with these moral imperatives. We can't fulfill them all within this lifetime. Therefore, certainly we wouldn't exist uh, in such a way that we couldn't fulfill the imperatives upon us. So therefore, there must be a life beyond in which we can fulfill these moral imperatives. But besides that, Living morally throughout eternity isn't going to bring happiness. I mean, you can live morally and be miserable because of the circumstances you're in. Therefore, there must be a God in the universe that can bring about such a state of affairs that when we're living morally, we can also live happily. So you see how that's a completely new argument for the existence of God, different from the old. The old, we're dealing with the world outside of us, Kant is dealing with the world inside of us. Schleimacher came along and said, uh, well, Kant, you're right, that we need to turn inside of us instead of outside of us. But what really represents our spiritual life is, is our feelings, not our morals, our feelings. And what is it that we all feel? All of us feel as if we are absolutely dependent. Well, dependent, yeah. So what is it that we are dependent how do we explain this feeling of absolute dependence well there must be a god upon whom we are absolutely dependent and so you take you know starting with man's moral nature and man's man's feeling nature and well let's start with man's nature and you use that as the foundation for your theology so now you say now the virgin birth, what does that have to do with the feeling of absolute dependence? You just throw it out. It has nothing to do with the feeling of absolute dependence. Um, you know, creation in six literal days, what does that have to do with your feeling of absolute dependence? Nothing. So you throw it out. Literal visible second coming. It doesn't have anything to do with the feeling of absolute dependence. So the basis upon which they build their theology becomes the screen through which they accept and reject anything else that's in, I should say religion, I was gonna say scripture, I mean they use scripture, but basically the study of religion and humankind becomes the foundation for their theology. And scripture is only applicable where it happens to agree with what they've already discovered be true in the natural world. So I want to go through this. (laughs) So epistemology, before Kant, um, the universe out there imposed meaning upon my mind. Kant said, we really can't know what's outside of our mind. The only thing I can know is what I see myself. I can't know. What's outside of me. And so, therefore, the mind is not something that focuses. The the mind can also distort. Now, a a lens can focus, but it can also distort, right? You know, you see these pictures of buildings that just go on and on and on up. The, The lens has distorted the picture. Okay, so, so. I cannot know things within themselves as I could before because whatever was there was exactly reproduced on my mind. Now I can only know things as they appear to me. And so truth is relative to me. So the mind is the lens, the camera, which determines what is seen as reality. So whereas before reality imposed meaning upon the mind of man, now the mind of man imposes meaning on reality. And so world philosophy turned to the world of interiority, the world inside of us, instead of the world outside. So basically, if you want to build any kind of theology at all, you have to start with all of the human disciplines and they provide the foundation upon which your theology can rightfully stand. So the new paradigm was a switch from the object, by the way this is called, a switch from the object to the subject, any of you in philosophy. <clears throat> so it's, the new paradigm was a switch from the object, the world outside of humanity, to the subject, the world inside of mankind. So, for the contemporary period, if you want to know God, you must do what? You look at man. Look in the mirror, see a reflection of yourself, label it God. So, some of the characteristics of theology to this point, except for the Reformation. Okay, natural continuity between the natural world and the world of religion. So so there's a natural continuity from the natural world, so I can start with the natural world, I can build my theology there, and it'll, it'll have its validity because of its foundation in the natural world. We're capable of determining the nature of reality as the basis for our theology, apart from scripture. Criteria other than scripture form the foundation for theology and our understanding of the natural world. And so the three systems here, one is we start with our concept of reality, we impose that on the Bible or we argue directly to who God is like. The Reformation, God reveals himself to us, therefore we can understand reality and we can understand God. The third, God is a reflection of ourselves and theology rests upon all of the human disciplines and that the Bible is not the basis for the human disciplines This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons please visit www. Dot audioverse.org.